You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is lecture number 12 and the final lecture in our series on the theology of the Old Testament. We are now in the midst of covering the minor prophets from the Old Testament, where we pointed out there are three basic divisions in the Old Testament. There's the historical books, actually there are 21 of them. There are the wisdom books in the middle. There are seven of those, including the book of Psalms. And then we have the prophets. We have 18 books of prophecy. They're actually 16 prophets, the four major prophets and the 12 minor prophets, plus two other books that are included in there called Lamentations and Baruch. So now we take the last four prophets of the Old Testament, which brings us down closest to New Testament times. We're going to cover in this lecture Zephaniah, Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, not very well-known prophet. Then there's Zechariah, who's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And the very last prophecy is Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi. So the first one then for this lecture, let's consider the prophet Zephaniah. He lived around before the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. He lived around 630 before Christ. So he would be a contemporary then at that time of Jeremiah. He prophesied under King Josiah, who reformed the Jewish religion in the year 622. But he seems to have prophesied before that religious revival, around 635, 630, something like that. He seems to have been a native of Jerusalem with connections to the royal court. He was the first important prophet to surface in Judah for about 50 years since the death of Isaiah. Now, Zephaniah lived at the end of the period of the kings. The kings run from around 1,000 to basically 600, a 400-year period. They were destroyed in 587 is the actual date. And he lived during this time, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. Two themes stand out in this prophecy, which he got from his predecessors, Amos and Isaiah. First of all, the day of the Lord is coming soon. That is, the Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem, and a remnant will survive in Judah. So Zephaniah is one of the least, we might say, one of the least original prophets in the Old Testament. Most of what he has, he's borrowed and he repeats from the other prophets, Amos and Isaiah. We have these two points, the day of the Lord and the remnant, which the other prophets have made use of also. Now, the sins that Zephaniah attacks are the superstitions and the idol worship practiced under the evil king Manasseh, and also Amon and the early Josiah in the 7th century. He does condemn the social sins, but his main concern are the superstitions, that is, the not carrying out the worship of the Lord in the temple the way they should. He's aware that the oppressive Assyrian Empire is about to fall to the Babylonians and the coming fall of Judah and Jerusalem will be for him the day of the Lord. 
which will be an intervention of Yahweh in history in a theophany or appearance of power and judgment. The prophet Zephaniah is faithful to the prophetic tradition in his conception of judgment and punishment as the result of sin. This is the Deuteronomic principle that we see running all the way through the historical books and also the prophets, especially the sins of idolatry and injustice to one's neighbor. Because Judah has sinned, she will be severely punished. He is one of the less original prophets, as I said, since he borrows heavily from those two others, Amos and Isaiah, especially these notions of the day of the Lord, the holy remnant, the deliverance, and the glory of Israel. There's no direct quotes of Zephaniah in the New Testament, but his graphic description of the dreaded day of the Lord in the first chapter, verses 14 to 18, inspired the opening words of the famous medieval dirge, Dies Irae, Dies Illa, which the church makes use of for masses for the dead, especially on November the 2nd for the Feast of All Souls. So that, that medieval hymn was inspired by the graphic description of the day of the Lord in the prophet Zephaniah. The next prophet, the 10th one, Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, is very short, not as short as Obadiah, it's the 21 verses. This has only two chapters, which was written around the year 520 BC. We even know the dates between August and December in the year 520 before Christ during the reign of Darius I of Persia. We don't know anything about the life of this Haggai, but he's mentioned as a prophet along with Zechariah in the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 14. The reason for that is the main point of this prophecy is an exhortation by the prophet to the leaders and the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 587. If you recall, the, the temple was destroyed, the people were carried off into captivity, then Cyrus the Persian destroys the Babylonian Empire in 587, and he sends these people back home from which they had been deported. So these people come back in 537, start to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, but they can't finish it. They just lose heart, they're not able to do it, and the crops are not very good, the wine, the grapes are not good, and so they're having a very difficult time. God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to urge the leaders in the year 520 to restore the temple, to rebuild the temple. The point of the prophecy is if you rebuild the temple, dedicate yourself to that, God will bless you with abundance of crops, of grapes, of wine, of cattle, and sheep, and so forth. But the reason why these things are not prospering is because you've given up on the temple, which means that they don't have the regular worship that takes place there with the sacrifices that were mandated by Moses in the Torah, that they've neglected that. So he's urging them to return to the worship of the true God the way it should take place. That's the key point of this prophecy of Haggai. Now the temple is a very important, as I've mentioned many times in this series, in the Jewish religion. It's one of the main themes, along with sin and the goodness of God and promise and fulfillment. The temple is extremely important and that's why the prophet here is raised up by God to urge the people to 
rebuild it. And that temple, in a symbolic way, is a sign of Christ himself and also of the church. So where God is present. So it's a sign of that. It's extremely important in the Old Testament. Those who return from exile are the remnant of Israel. They're the ones the prophets had said would survive, and that's their task now to rebuild the temple. That is this small group that God will use to fulfill his promise to David about his descendants, and the descendant of David is Christ the Lord, who is the Savior of the world. And by mentioning the remnant, Haggai reminds us of the promise to David, which we've mentioned many times in this series, in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter, that there will always be a successor of yours on the throne of David. And so it's very messianic in that sense, and that messianic prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is the successor of David and a son of David. So it has a strong messianic tone. So the prophet says then explicitly that the reason for the poverty of the people and the suffering of the people is that they have not rebuilt the temple. So as a result of the stimulus coming from Haggai, and we're going to see the next prophet, Zechariah, at the same time, the people set to work in 520, and in five years, they finished the temple. So the new temple, which was not as elegant as the original temple built by Solomon, but at least it was a temple on Mount Moriah, where the present uh, mosque of Omar is in Jerusalem. It's on that particular spot. It was finished in 515 before Christ and dedicated. And from that point on, then things picked up for them as promised by the prophet. Their crops increased. They had plenty of food and wine and animals and things like that. God blessed them because they finished the temple. So that's the prophet Haggai. Now we have two more for finishing up this series on the Old Testament. The next prophet, number 11, in the series of 12 minor prophets is Zechariah. There are 14 chapters in Zechariah. There are 14 chapters in Hosea and 14 chapters in Zechariah. So it's a pretty long prophecy, actually, for one of the minor prophets. But those are, those are the two longest ones. He prophesied also between 520 and 518 before Christ. He's a contemporary of the prophet we just covered, Haggai. And the first part of his prophecy also has to do with urging the prince and the leaders and the priests to get with it, to get the necessary stones and wood and workmen and so forth, and to go to work on the temple and finish it. This was done under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. He was a priest and a special interest in the temple of this Zechariah. He was from the priestly caste. This Zerubbabel was kind of like the chosen of the Lord. In the Bible, he's the last known descendant of King David up to that time until we get down to the uh, genealogy of Joseph and the birth of Jesus from the Blessed Virgin Mary as a son of David. Now we have the same situation here, as I mentioned in the previous prophecy of Haggai. That is, the Babylonians had destroyed everything. They were carried off into captivity. In 37, then Cyrus, the Persians, came along. And the policy of the Babylonians and the Assyrians was to take these captive peoples away and take them off into captivity. The policy of the Persians was just the opposite. That when they conquered Babylon and they found all these people there from other countries, they sent them back home. They said, you go back 
and rebuild your city and rebuild your temple and go back and practice your religion. So that's how the remnant then who had survived after 50 years in Babylon are sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and from the point of view of the Bible and the Jewish religion is to rebuild the temple where the true worship of God would take place. So the rebuilding of the temple then is a key idea in the prophecy of Zechariah, especially in the first eight chapters of that book. So a very strong feature of this book also in the second half of it is the messianism, the prophecy of the one who is to come. The messiah means the one who's anointed. This anointing is related to the anointing of the king, like Samuel, the prophet Samuel anointed Saul, he anointed Paul. We have the anointing in the sacraments in the Catholic Church. The Messiah, the Christ, is the one who's anointed. It means he's especially chosen by God to carry out something in salvation history. So the historical situation for Zechariah and Haggai is exactly the same because it's the same time. Now because of the sharp difference in language and content between chapters 1 and 8 and chapters 9 and 14, so we have two parts in this prophecy, the vast majority of contemporary scholars hold that the last six chapters of Zechariah were added in the late 4th century to the early prophecy of Zechariah. The dominant idea in both parts is messianism, that is, predicting the future coming of the son of David who would save his people. That's the Messiah. And at the time of Jesus, they were looking for a Messiah who was a military leader like the judges and like the Maccabees. And Jesus did not accept publicly the designation Messiah because of the false understanding. And that's why he used the name Son of Man to designate himself. As we mentioned when we we're talking about the prophet Ezekiel, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And also in Daniel 7.13, where Jesus is described as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and majesty. So messianic significance is attributed to the new temple and also to the governor at this particular time, 518, 515, Zerubbabel is his name, who was the last member of the house of David to rule over Judah and Jerusalem. So he was the last one who acted like a king or a ruler. There were descendants of David going down to Joseph and Mary, but they weren't kings, they weren't rulers. Joseph and Mary were poor people living in Nazareth. Zechariah also stresses the notion of universalism in the sense that the salvation promised to Israel is to be offered to all nations. The same idea we encountered in Isaiah and we encountered in the prophet Jonah. Here also this universalism shows up in Zechariah. In addition, he often refers to the importance of moral conversion as a necessary preparation for the inauguration of the new era. That is, the new era of the coming of the Messiah must be preceded by repentance and conversion. That we find in the preaching of John the Baptist, right? Before the coming of Jesus, he's preaching the same thing, to repent of their sins, to be converted, and to change their ways from evil ways to following the law of God. The absolute transcendence of God is brought out in this book by a developed theology of angels. God, in this book, usually does not speak directly to the prophet as he does in other books. 
Here, he communicates with him through angels and through visions. The second part of this prophecy of Zechariah is often called Deutero-Zechariah, or Second Zechariah. In addition to being messianic, it is also heavily apocalyptic, with wild images and so forth of disturbances in the heavens, which is a special type of biblical writing which interprets events in the present world by reference to what is taking place in the heavens. Thus, the prophet speaks of the defeat of the foreign oppressors of Israel and the messianic woes which will usher in the final triumph of the Messiah. Jerusalem is mentioned frequently in this prophecy, and the messianism of 2 Zechariah or Deutero-Zechariah, plus the emphasis on the New Age, is the reason for the number of quotes of Zechariah found in the four Gospels. We find them in Matthew 21 and John 19. Zechariah also influenced St. John in the writing of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, because of the apocalyptic dimension of this prophecy, which is the next to last book in the Old Testament. Now we come finally to the end of our series, the very last prophecy, and that's the prophecy of Malachi, which has three chapters. So far as we know, from the contents of the book, it was written around the time, again, of Ezra, Nehemiah, probably around 440, 450, something like that. The name Malachi means my messenger. And the word occurs in chapter 3, verses 1. Verse 1, it could be either a proper name or a title. It's probably a proper name. We don't know for sure. It could also be a title. Malachi is a prophet who proclaims God's word to a people who have become self-centered and neglectful of the pure worship of God. Once again, it's a prophet calling the people back from externalism to interiorly realizing their religion and practicing the love of God instead of just externally making sacrifices. They have fallen into a state of spiritual complacency and lack of zeal for God and for His commands. Their religious practice has become an empty ritual that reflects lives devoid of personal reverence. So his task is to stir them up to fervor and zeal for God and for His commandments. He tries to cultivate in the people a lively faith based on reverence for God and the temple worship, fidelity to the commandments, and a holy fear of divine judgment, which will surely come in the future. This book contains six oracles in the three chapters. The first one is, the Lord loves Israel in spite of all her faults. Second, the priests and Levites have been unfaithful by neglecting the standards related to the offering of sacrifices and teaching the law. They're not worshiping God the way they should. Thirdly, God hates divorce and marriage with foreigners. He recommends breaking off these marriages with foreigners. Why is that? Because the foreigners bring in false worship and idols and corrupt the true worship of Israel. Fourthly, the Lord will surely come to purify the temple and the Levites. And that happens when Jesus comes and cleanses the temple. Fifthly, prosperity of the land will return when honest tithing at the temple is restored, when people fulfill their religious obligations. And sixthly, 
those who fear the Lord and keep his commands will be saved on the day of judgment. That is the day of the Lord. And a later editor, probably around the year 300 before Christ, added two appendices, one about Moses in 322, and the other to Elijah as the precursor of the day of the Lord. And this leads right into Elijah, the precursor. Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah who's come again. Malachi lays much stress on matters of worship, just like Haggai, Zechariah, and Joel before him. He regards the temple and the priesthood and the liturgy as central elements in the restored community and in the messianic age to come. He confronts the spiritual aridity and mere externalism of his people with a call to fidelity to the law of God, to reverence for holy things, to reverent awe before the living God. He warns them that the day of the Lord is coming when God will reward the just and punish the wicked, a theme that is borrowed from the Deuteronomic history. And beginning with the fathers of the church, Christians have seen a prediction of the mass of the Holy Eucharist in the remarkable words found in the first chapter, verse 11. This is remarkable. Note this, chapter 1, verse 11. I quote, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and everywhere they bring sacrifice to my name and a pure offering. End of quote. This is a prediction of the celebration of the Mass anywhere in the world, which takes place at the present time, since the coming of Christ. So this is a good sense of what's known as the fuller sense of Holy Scripture and a prophecy that the true worship of God as found in the church will spread throughout the world. The prophet condemns social evils, especially divorce, which was rampant then and rampant in our society. The prophet says in 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And in the final verses, the prophet says that God will send Elijah the prophet. Remember, who Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot before the day of the Lord comes. Jesus interpreted this to mean the coming of John the Baptist before his own appearance in Matthew 17, 10 to 13. Malachi's understanding of divorce is based on Genesis rather than on Moses' permission of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Now, by ending his book on the positive note of the coming of the precursor before the day of the Lord, the last book of the Old Testament leads directly to the New Testament with the preaching of John the Baptist and his pointing out of Jesus as the Lamb of God. I think I'll read those last two verses to you to bring home what the prophet is saying. These are the last two verses of the Old Testament before the beginning of St. Matthew's Gospel that you find in your Bible, the last page before the New Testament and the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. These are verses 22 and 23. Remember the law of my servant Moses, to whom at Horeb I prescribed laws and customs for the whole of Israel. Know that I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before my day comes, that great and terrible day. He shall turn the hearts of fathers towards their children and the hearts of children towards their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. So the Bible ends on a hopeful and prophetic note of the second coming of Elijah. And Jesus says that that actually takes place in the preaching of St. John the Baptist. 
Now, just in conclusion here, we have a few more minutes. I wanted to kind of capsulize this and summarize it. There's certain basic themes that I've tried to bring out in these 12 lectures. The first one is that God is almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is the master of history. Nothing happens in this world, but he wills it or permits it. But he's also a God of merciful love. There's that chesed, merciful love and fidelity. But at the same time, he's a just God and he punishes those who refuse to repent. He established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. That covenant is renewed in a very special way with the coming of Jesus, his death on the cross, and the institution of the Holy Eucharist and of the church. There's the connection of promise and fulfillment, especially in the prophecies and also in the Old Testament. God promises certain things, and through his grace, he always fulfills it. He's faithful. You have the Deuteronomic principle that runs all the way through the historical books of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Joshua, Judges, Chronicles, and also in the prophets, that the good are rewarded and the evil are punished. That's a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. Next, there's the importance of the presence of God among his people. That's the temple, the temple theme that runs all the way through the Bible. And we find that fulfilled in our churches where Christ is present in the Blessed Sacrament, in the tabernacle, in our churches, and through the sacraments. We have this sequence of sin, punishment, repentance, and restoration that we saw in the book of Judges. That runs all the way through the Bible also. The prophets call for repentance, for interior conversion as opposed to externalism. They want interior conversion of heart, the circumcision of the heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. The Lord says that I'm going to take that heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And finally, man's response to God's initiative in Revelation in the Bible is one of faith and proper worship of God and good deeds by keeping the Ten Commandments. So with this, I want to conclude our 12th lecture, and I uh, wish you all well, and I hope I've been able to assist you to, in some way to come to an understanding of what the basic theology of the 46 books of the Old Testament is. So thank you very much for being with us, and God bless you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.